This is a production of Dermcast TV, brought to you by the Society of Dermatology PAs during our summer meeting in San Diego, California, June 2017. I'm going to talk to you a little bit about psoriasis. You've already heard a lot about psoriasis in the meeting from product theaters and things, but uh, this is going to be a very, very practical talk. It's basically revolving around real people and real decisions. So hopefully there'll be something for everybody, something that will resonate with you, some problem you faced. These are all my patients. Everything on here is exactly what happened. And so this is real life. Okay. So just a few words of introduction really quickly while some people march out, get a drink, go to the restroom, and so forth. You know, there's a wide variety of things you can do now for psoriasis, right? You have all sorts of things going back to our topical agents, our traditional agents, phototherapy, traditional systemic drugs, the biologic drugs. There's lots and lots and lots you can do. And if there's nothing else that you remember, which is not a huge point, and you probably already know it and think this way, but its treatment should be individualized. And sometimes it has to be, and that's what a lot of this talk is about. So these are some of the considerations you should give. It's not going into the room and seeing a new psoriasis patient for the first time and, oh, you look bad, I'll give you a biologic drug. It's not that simple, of course, right? There are things you need to know. Do they have psoriatic arthritis? What have they used before? Did it work? Did it not work? Did they have side effects? Lots of stuff about their medical history. And if it hasn't been investigated, maybe it should be investigated. Years ago, I used to say when I lectured on psoriasis, I would say we took the blood pressure on every psoriasis patient. And I would get comments like, what a waste of time. We know now that the metabolic syndrome, one component of which is hypertension, occurs in psoriatic patients. So it isn't a waste of time. Their past history also includes cancer because that might affect what you do as a therapy. Their past history includes vaccinations, what they've received, what they want to receive, what they might have to receive because of work. And Dr. Blauvelt touched on that with Depixent. It's the same is true of all biologic agents. It's kind of a knee-jerk reaction, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. Social history is important. Are they planning if it's a woman of childbearing potential? Is she planning on having a child? Does she use adequate contraception? Are they close to wherever you're practicing, close to the medical center? If you want to do an infusion and they're not anywhere close, that's a big problem. And then also, and I think most importantly is that last one, patient's preference. Some patients will prefer an oral. Some will prefer a subcutaneous injection. Some say, I'm not shooting myself under any circumstances. Some say, all I want is some goop, topical agent. So you have to honor and try and work with the patient's preferences for therapy as much as you can. And even if it's sometimes against your better judgment, you might do that and then 
later change your therapy if the initial intervention isn't successful. So psoriatic arthritis is important. So we're going to do some ARS questions as we go through this, and let's see how you do. So here's the first one. Psoriatic arthritis occurs before skin disease in most patients. Psoriatic arthritis occurs after onset of skin disease in most patients. Psoriatic arthritis occurs concurrently with the onset of skin disease most often, or none of these choices are correct. What do you think? Okay, so the majority just said psoriatic arthritis occurs after skin disease, and that's exactly correct. In fact, about three-quarters, two-thirds to three-quarters of the time, they already have skin disease. That said, it doesn't mean that psoriatic arthritis can't have an onset at the same time as their skin disease, and it certainly doesn't mean they can't have psoriatic arthritis in advance of their skin disease. That does happen 10, 15% of the time. Pretty difficult to diagnose as psoriatic arthritis if the patient has no history of psoriatic disease, no dactylitis, no nail disease, as you saw the Caspar criteria earlier, but it can happen. And these are examples of psoriatic arthritis. Again, all of these pictures are my own patients. And always think, so I'm gonna try and give you little pearls along the way. Always think psoriatic arthritis if there's involvement of the distal interphalangeal joint. That's kind of typical of psoriatic arthritis. And you know as part of the criteria to diagnose psoriatic arthritis, nail involvement is one of the criteria, one of the scoring criteria. It isn't that you can't have psoriatic arthritis with na without nail disease, but if you do, it makes it more likely that an inflammatory arthropathy is actually psoriatic in nature. And there's another subtle difference. People who have psoriatic nail disease are at increased risk of developing psoriatic arthritis in the future if they don't have it at your initial evaluation. So nail disease is a tip. Either they have psoriatic arthritis or they might develop it in the future. And psoriatic arthritis is bad. For some people, they can't use their hands. They have difficulty standing. They may leave the workforce because of psoriatic arthritis. And let me show you this. Remember, all these pictures are real people. This is a 46-year-old woman who was seeing her primary care provider as her only source of medical intervention until she somehow found her way into the dermatology world. She was diagnosed with psoriasis and getting many pound jars of triamcinolone, and she was diagnosed accurately by her primary care provider with psoriatic arthritis, which he chose to treat with only NSAIDs for decades, and that's what happened. That is irreversibly damaged. She will never have full functionality of her hand. That should not happen now. 46 years old. Okay, let's try another ARS question. Methotrexate 
does not improve the symptoms of psoriatic arthritis. Methotrexate improves both signs, radiologic findings, and symptoms of psoriatic arthritis. Methotrexate improves symptoms, but not radiologic findings of psoriatic arthritis. Methotrexate improves signs, radiologic findings, but not symptoms, or methotrexate is contraindicated in psoriatic arthritis. So we have a large proportion of you, again, plurality, voted for the correct thing. Methotrexate improves symptoms. It will improve functionality and decrease pain and swelling, but it does not stop the radiographic progression of disease. And think how far we've come with the biologic drugs, which can, certainly the TNF-alpha agents can. At a time not that long ago, methotrexate was the drug of choice to be administered to all patients with psoriatic arthritis, and you would make them feel better and more functional, but their joints continued to degenerate, and ultimately they would look like that lady I showed you. So to me, it's no longer even close to the drug of choice in patients that we know have psoriatic arthritis. So keep in mind, the newer treatments do that they impair progression of disease along with improving symptoms and functionality. And that's a very key difference. Now, of the biologic drugs, they are all approved except for the last two on there for the treatment of psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. But if you look at the data, the TNF-alpha inhibitors are clearly much better than IL-1223 in that regard. And all the IL-17s, Cosentix, Secukinumab, is approved for psoriatic arthritis. TALS is not approved yet, but there's very good data, whether it's administered once a week or it's administered every other week. And against Humira as a control drug, everything did much better than placebo. So there's no doubt in my mind that it will be approved for psoriatic arthritis, as will, I think, bradalumab or Salik. I think all of these will ultimately have the approval for psoriatic arthritis, although the data is strongest and we have more studies with the TNF-alpha drugs. But I suspect the IL-17 drugs will also be very useful. Diabetes, I spoke about this the first day, if anyone didn't see this. Keep in mind that the TNF-alpha inhibitors improve the ability to manage type 2 diabetes if someone is diabetic along with their psoriasis. So you get a bigger bang for the buck. We don't have this same kind of data for IL-1223 and IL-17 drugs, but we have it solidly for TNF-alpha drugs. Psychiatric history is important. Depression, suicidal ideation, perhaps past suicide attempts. I'm going to show you a slide later that says that about 10% of psoriatics have suicidal ideation. But they can also be depressed. 
They can also be anxious. So psychiatric history is important because you'll see with one of the drugs, this is a black box warning. So that's an important part of your history as you're considering what therapeutic intervention to employ. Which biologic agent has a boxed warning regarding depression and suicide? Adalimumab, bradalumab, secukinumab, etanercept, or none of these? Okay, so the majority said none of these. Of the rest, there's a majority saying bradalumab, and that is the correct answer. That's the black box warning. Now, to be perfectly honest, if you dissect the data from which this warning emanated, it's a little shaky. And we already know that patients may have psychiatric disorders, depression, anxiety, suicidal ideation, even with no therapy at all, and maybe because of no therapy. But still, this is a black box warning. Whether it's right or it's wrong is irrelevant from our perspective because of this. If you give bradalumab to someone who's already tried to commit suicide and you did not elicit that history, and then they complete successfully a suicide attempt, their estate, their relatives, will sue you and you will lose because this is in the package insert. So you need to know that. I'm not going to argue whether it's actually accurate or not. It doesn't matter. It's there. And until it's removed, you need to be cognizant of that. Childbearing potential. Very important, let's list all the biologic drugs. Which drug is considered safe during pregnancy? Or which therapeutic intervention? Tanercept, PUVA light therapy, methotrexate, acetretin, or none of the above? Okay, we've got two poles. We have etanercept and nothing. One of those poles is correct. It's etanercept. And here are the pregnancy categories. You know these will no longer be used, which I think is really a shame. They didn't want to mislead anyone, but now you don't lead, you have no lead at all. So, for example, ixekizumab is an N. N is there's just no rating. I would suspect because similar drugs like secukinumab do not have a problem with pregnancy that it also does not, but there's really no guidance, there's no statement. But if you look at all the biologic drugs, they're all green, they're all category B, they're all considered safe in pregnancy in this sense, there's no evidence that they're not safe, and there are pregnancy registries for all of these drugs which have not shown a problem in pregnancy. By contrast, a premolast and cyclosporin may be safe in pregnancy. And by contrast, sorolins, methotrexate, and acetretin are absolutely no-nos. Narrowband UVB would be okay because there's no chemical involved. 
but methotrexate and a retinoid X never be used. What's the mean age of onset of psoriasis? Yes, it can be very old, it can be in childhood, but the average age of onset is somewhere between 20 and 30. What are people doing between 20 and 30? They're forming family units, they're having children. So you need to be aware of that aspect of somebody's life as you're making decisions about their psoriatic interventions. So I wanted to cover those few things before I actually did cases. So you'll keep what I've said in mind about those various issues. And now I'm gonna go through some modestly challenging cases to sort of really challenging cases. And as we do the case, there should be a point or two that you can take home. Every one of these are real, these histories are right off the chart, and you'll see what happened. So, and I want you to think as I go through these, what would I do? What would you do? And I will tell you from the outset, there's no right or wrong answer. This is an algorithmic thing and it comes out to choices. And you could pick many of the choices as I'll show you and you're still fine. I'll show you what I picked, I'll tell you why I picked it, often with input from the patient or in relationship to the patient's social situation, their occupation and how much they had to travel, their preference, which have absolutely nothing to do with it's a better or worse therapy, but it does impact your choice. So think about what you would do with the patients I'm gonna show you. If you're thinking differently than I am, it's okay. There's no right or wrong, but I will give you the rationale for my choices. So here's a 52-year-old Caucasian with a 22-year history of mild to moderate plaque psoriasis. Started when he was 30-ish. It's been fairly limited, mostly the limbs involved. No joint tenderness, no swelling, no, no evidence of psoriatic arthritis. He's physically fit, no known comorbidities, minimal in terms of drinking and smoking, but he is a truck driver. So that really precludes right out of the box phototherapy, because he can't come in and get his treatment. He can't have eczema laser, I could for spot treatments, but it's gonna be probably so infrequent that it's not gonna do any good. Eczema or laser is twice a week. You can sometimes get away with once a week, but even so, if he's on the road for four months at a time, delivering things and then comes home for two months, that's just not gonna work. He hasn't seen anyone for a while. He's been busy, quote, and so no therapy for eight years. He flared, and now he looks like this. So there he is, five to six percent, so mostly his elbows, but he had a few spots elsewhere, not much. You can see he's slightly overweight, nothing to write home about, blood pressure okay, he had labs recently, they were all fine, chest x-rays normal. This is his most bothersome psoriasis, what you see here. So here are your choices. I chose not to give him a biologic drug. He has no comorbidities. I don't have to worry about psoriasis and diabetes, doesn't have it. It's so minimal in extent. 
I didn't even want to go these routes. One might think about a premolast in this patient, because he did have a few off the elbows. But I thought, in reality, this is pretty limited extent. Why make it more complicated than it needs to be? And so this is the menu, eczema being excluded. It would be appropriate if he were stationary, because I can treat the elbows very easily, if that's his worst disease, with localized laser therapy. But he's on the road, so that's excluded. So you have all of these. And any one of these would be perfectly fine, or a combination of these, or a combination drug. The TCI's not particularly good on peripheral psoriasis. So I would kind of X those too. If this has been psoriasis on the genitalia, psoriasis on the eyelid, maybe. Peri-anal psoriasis, maybe. But it doesn't do as well over bony prominences. But any of the other things here would be fine. So he chose, because he said, just give me goop, doc. That's what he said. I said, fine, I'll give you goop. And we'll find a goop that works for you, hopefully. So I gave him the, you know what it is, steroid and vitamin D combination in an emollient foam, and he did just fine. And he continues to do that. And that's all he needed. Which drug is approved for combination therapy with UVB? Etanercept, ustekinumab, methotrexate, adalimumab, or none of the above? Okay, a really nice split, except the answer is none of the above. Nothing's approved officially for the use of UBB phototherapy, narrow band, broad band, or any band. Bottom line is there are lots of papers on this. And combination of phototherapy with biologic drugs or traditional drug like methotrexate actually is quite good. And if someone's on a biologic drug and they get clear, but not quite clear enough, then phototherapy, whether it's localized with eczema or laser or a booth box with narrowband UVB, is certainly a way to go in terms of finishing up their clearing. But nothing's really approved. That's all off-label. Plenty of literature to justify it, but it's really not approved, just so you understand that. And you should always tell your patient, if you're doing something off-label, because you don't want them to come back later and say, ah, you didn't tell me that. I didn't know it wasn't approved. You also might point out to them that about 65% of everything we do in dermatology is not approved. That's the way it is. OK, next patient. 26-year-old, fair-complected. You can see how fair she is. Caucasian female with an 11-year history. So she's had this since she was 15 of moderate to severe plaque psoriasis with fairly widespread involvement. She has no indication that he has psoriatic arthritis yet. Her past medical history, no, no comorbidities. But even though she's only 26, she was born and raised in Houston, Sunbelt. She's already had three small basal cell carcinomas. 
So that should figure in, at least to your thinking. She's a non-drinker, non-smoker, and she's very embarrassed about her condition. Which statement is true regarding psoriasis? The skin may itch, but never hurts. The skin may hurt, but never itches. The skin neither hurts nor itches. The skin may hurt or itch or both. And the skin always hurts and itches. Which do you think is the best answer? Okay, 91%, pick the right answer. So yes, it may hurt and it may itch or it may do both of the above. You know, the National Psoriasis Foundation is our helper and our, really, our colleague in this endeavor. And they've done many surveys and here's one of the more recent ones showing that 72% of psoriasis patients experience itching. And almost 60% feel physical pain in their lesions, that isn't joints, that's physical pain in their skin. So it can hurt and it can itch. And aside from being embarrassed, this particular patient said she really itched. And you saw how widespread this was. Also, I've already mentioned this, National Psoriasis Foundation survey, 10%. Suicidal ideation with no therapy. So she's short, you know, she's reasonably weighted, slightly overweight, blood pressure is fine, recent labs all fine, had a chest x-ray, everything's fine. So what do you need to ask? She's had this a long time, what has she done? So she tried methotrexate way back when this started, and she did it twice. And both times her liver enzymes went up three times, more than three times upper limits of normal. She actually was given cyclosporin, and her blood pressure shot up. She had, she said, quote, dangerous hypertension. Patients aren't always accurate or right, but you know, I would take that into account. And it went down when she stopped the cyclosporin. I'm not giving her cyclosporin. She had acetratin, never helped. She had a Tanercept already and initially did well, but then over about a year, it all went to less than a posi 50 response. And she actually knew the number. So her previous dermatologist, actually two dermatologists ago, measured her posi, actually did that. She actually did best on aphalazumab. Does anyone remember that drug? It's Raptiva. And she did great on it. And she was greatly saddened when it was pulled off the market because then going from almost clear, she started to flare. In fact, she ended up worse than she was before she was put on the drug. So sad day, no longer available. She asked me, can you get it in Europe or Russia or China or somewhere? And I said, no. And if I could, I wouldn't because importing something that's been discontinued in the United States could put me in the Hoosgau. So that's the end of that. Now, remember I said social history. So she's divorced. She's not in a monogamous relationship. She's dating. She's taking oral contraceptives, but she said, I forget sometimes. Great. And do you, do you have sex without a condom? Yeah, occasionally. Okay, you forget your contraceptives, you have sex without a condom. This is a problem. She could end up pregnant. 
and then she's in a pickle and I'm in a pickle. If I put her on a biologic drug, what am I gonna do? She also wants the quadrivalent HPV vaccine. She's just at the end of the approval age. So if she wants it, she should get it now. She worked for Shell Oil, and at Shell Oil, I think is true of most oil companies, you have to take a foreign posting if you want to get ahead. And she's anticipating being assigned to Angola. If she's sent to Angola, which is in Africa, she's going to need all the vaccinations down there. So this is complicated. She's got pretty widespread psoriasis. I hope you can appreciate that. She's had therapies that haven't worked or have had unacceptable side effects. She's of childbearing potential, and more than that, she forgets her pills and has unprotected sex. She's got a bunch of vaccinations she's probably going to need. And she's had basal cell carcinoma. What to do now? So I've listed pretty much all the options. A premolast would be a reasonable thing, but when I discussed it with her and told her she could maybe have nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, appetite alterations, she said, no, not for me. She's not going to get cyclosporin. Again, she's not going to get methotrexate. She's not going to get acetretin. She already failed a tannercept. She doesn't want IVs. So I've got a bunch of possible, and she's widespread enough to justify any of those biologic drugs. And any one of those you want to give her are just fine. So we talked, and she decided she wanted Humira. She thought that every other week was pretty reasonable. And what she really liked was the fact that we had over 15 years of safety data on this drug, not like some of the newer agents. We might have a lot of patients, but we don't have longevity. It's irrelevant for weight, and she's not that big anyhow. But you still have to address other decisions. What about pregnancy? Not a problem, as we already mentioned. Category B, if she's going to get Humira, it's OK. Which statement is true regarding a biologic drugs and non-melanoma skin cancers? She's had basal cell. Biologic drugs increase basal cell, but not squamous cell. Biologic drugs increase basal squamous cell, but not basal cell. Biologic drugs increase both basal cell and squamous cell. Biologic drugs increase neither basal cell or carcinoma. Biologic drugs actually decrease basal cell and squamous cell carcinoma. What do you think? Oh, a nice spread. I love it. C is actually the right answer. And here's a direct quote. All biologics for psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis appear to increase the incidence of basal cell cancer and squamous cell cancer. It's both. To that end, baseline and periodic total body skin exams are warranted for these therapies. The interval might vary depending on what you think. She's already had three basal cells. Guess what? She's already going to be seen twice a year by my, I like to do six-month visits, by my routine anyhow. So that wouldn't preclude me from doing a biologic drug. But I do have to tell her that I may be putting her at increased risk for additional skin cancers. Which statement is true regarding biologic drugs and TB? A chest x-ray is sufficient to rule out latent TB. A negative PPD and quantiferon are required to rule out TB. A negative PPD or quantiferon 
is required to rule out latent TB. Latent TB cannot be ruled out by any test or combination of tests, or latent TB is not important or relevant to the administration of biologic drugs. Elvis. And yes, most of you got that right. So it's either or, but not a chest x-ray, and that's all she's had, so she needs some assessment for latent TB, right? Whether it's a PPD or whether it's a quantiferon, and yes, she needs, if she goes on a biologic drug, she's already picked Humira, she goes on a biologic drug, she is going to need that repeated once a year. Not a big deal, but it is important. Now, vaccination. You heard a little bit about vaccination from Dr. Blaubelt just a little bit ago. There's not very much objective evidence that there's a big problem. The two problems could be if you give a live vaccine and you give a biologic drug, you might suppress the immune response to the live vaccine, and so it might become pathogenic or the vaccine might not work. The reality is that most of the times when that's been looked at, it's pretty rare to have an inadequate immune response. But the best thing to do is administer the vaccines. I think you've heard that more than once in this entire meeting. Administer the vaccines before they start biologic therapy. Even the dead ones or the non-organism non ones, if they're just protein, you probably should give before the biologic to ensure that they'll have adequate immunologic response. So here are the vaccines she either wants or will have to get, and there's only one that's a major problem. It's a live yellow virus vaccine that she's gonna need to get to go to Angola. So I would delay her biologic therapy, make sure she gets that vaccine, wait a month, and then she can start her biologic therapy. There's another one that she's only 26. So there's another one that's looming in the future, and that's the Zoster vaccine, which is also a live virus. So I told her, I re reminded her that this exists and said, now we'll deal with that when you're 50. Of course, I'll be retired by the time she's 50, but somebody will deal with it in the future. And besides, there's gonna be a new Zoster vaccine anyhow that's better than the existing one. But that's in the future, and it's not indicated till age 50. Anyhow, it's 25 years in the future. But you should inform the younger patients that. So here's what happened after three months. She's maintained for a year, and now she's been on three years, more or less with a posi 75. Is she perfect? No. But she went from that to that, and she's happy. I'm happy. Good enough. Okay. Always consider prior therapies, present all options, and remember the two drugs of the same class. Remember, she'd failed a Tanercept. Two drugs of the same class are different drugs, and they may still work when another drug doesn't. 82-year-old, 82, 82. Remember I mentioned a little while ago, I had an 80-year-old aunt who developed psoriasis, and no one would treat her. Ruined the rest of her life, and she lived till she was 91. 82-year-old African-American, 60-year history of psoriasis, moderate to severe, no joint tenderness, swelling, has some low back pain, but that's been diagnosed as osteoarthritis. He is type 2 diabetic. 
He's hypertensive, not well controlled, and three years ago he had resection of colon cancer. Doesn't drink, he smokes, so be it. Now, he's been using long-term topical and actually did okay with it, along with some narrowband UVB, but then his wife died two years ago. He's been un psychiatrically depressed, distressed about it. He flared, and his phototherapy, even with the addition of his acetretin, has been absolutely no good. I gave him etanercept to start. He got transient improvement and then reverted to where he started with. I gave him adalimumab. Next, I gave him Humira. He improved for six months and then went downhill. And that's what he looks like. He's got 87% body surface area. By show of hands, how many of you would give him 300 one-pound jars of triamcinolone with 150 refills? No, you're not going to treat 87% body surface area with a topical. He's obese, mildly hypertensive. Look at his diastolic. Um, he's got increased fasting blood sugar. He's got a creatinine of 1.6. Now remember, he's 82, so that's not too bad, but he's also diabetic. I suspect he's got age plus diabetes-related nephropathy. What drug am I not going to give him that I would otherwise at least think about for widespread psoriasis? Cyclosporin, right? He's already hypertensive mildly. He's got elevated creatinine. We know that one of the major problems with cyclosporin is nephrotoxicity. Not going to give it to him. So he's severe, he's had failure on some other drugs, he's hypertensive, elevated creatinine, he also has cancer three years ago. Five years until you become declared cured. So he's three year history. So what do I do now? Well, a lot of things have been already ruled out because of comorbidities or previous experience. Um, that leaves me primarily with a premolast, I talked to him about that. He was concerned about GI side effects. That was out. So that leaves me with ustekinumab and the IL-17 drugs as reasonable things to think about right now. Eventually, we'll have IL-23 drugs. They're pretty close, so we'll have additional ones. But this is what I had to work with. Which statement is true regarding ustekinumab? Dosing during maintenance. The dose is 45 milligrams every 12 weeks for all patients. The dose is 90 milligrams every 12 weeks for all patients. The dose is either 45 or 90 milligrams every 12 weeks, depending on weight. The dose is 180 milligrams every 12 weeks, or it's 220 milligrams every 12 weeks, the last two for all patients. What's true of ustekinumab? Okay, hallelujah, 94%. I don't have to say a thing. You know, this is weight-based. And he's pretty heavy. So it's good that I have the option to give him a weight-based dosed medication. So we talked about it, and he chose ustekinumab. Now, I told him we don't have the longevity of safety. We have pretty good safety data, but it's not quite like etanercept or or adalimumab in terms of long-term, but it looks good. He's 253 pounds, so he ends up 
he ends up getting the 90 milligram dose. But you still have to address this issue. Three years ago, colon cancer. So the best way to address this is call the oncologist, taking care of him. Because making that decision unilaterally could get you in trouble. So talk to the oncologist. And here's what the package insert says. Stellara may increase risk of malignancy. Actually, not really, but might, so it's in the package insert. Safety of Stellara in patients with a history of a known malignancy has not been evaluated. It doesn't say don't do it. It doesn't say you can do it. It says we don't know. So honestly, look at the second paragraph there. The minority of malignancies that occur are visceral, and the rate with ustekinumab is about the same as placebo. There's really no evidence that ustekinumab is a problem with malignancy, but still, you call the oncologist. The oncologist said, fine, he, we think we cured him. We can't declare him cured because it's three years. We have to go five, but go ahead, and we'll just keep a close eye on him. So after three injections, this is what he looks like. Three injections. And he's been on drug now about three and a half years. He has a posi 90-ish response. Every once in a while, he gets a little tiny flare, and we put an ultra-potent steroid on there, and it goes away. And all that post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation has failed. So I took him from that to that, and he's a very happy camper. In fact, for the last three years, every Christmas, he brings me peppermint bark, my favorite candy, which, by the way, you might all remember for next year when I'm here. <laughs> peppermint bark. OK. The bottom line, too, you've heard this, is psoriasis itself can be associated with malignancy, lymphoma for sure, but also other types of malignancy. So I didn't feel I was putting him at any jeopardy. Let's skip this one. Oh, this is important. He's black. So there is a message here in that skin of color has often been said not to have severe psoriasis. That's bull hockey. Here are three black patients with what I would consider to be pretty nasty psoriasis. The lady in the middle had standard psoriasis with about 60% body surface area. And for whatever reason people do this, she flipped into exfoliative erythroderma. So you certainly can see psoriasis in skin of color, particularly in African-American patients, and it can be very severe. So ethnicity is not an exclusion to the diagnosis of psoriasis, and that's an important point. Here's a 35-year-old Hispanic female, a year and a half history of psoriasis. She's from Brazil. She's had a tubal ligation. One problem I don't have to worry about. Okay, she's been given pound jars of triamcinolone, no evidence of psoriatic arthritis. She likes to drink when she parties. That's usually an admission that should be an alarm bell in your mind. So I pressed a little further and she said, well, yeah, you know, I used to shoot up and I had a liver problem a few years ago, but I'm okay and I'm clean now. You're not required to do it, but you should think about things in her. She's just barely obese. That's what she looks like pre-treatment. So I checked for 
hepatitis B, and she's positive. Probably from her days of intravenous drug abuse, could also be sexually transmitted. I drink when I party. So it's a possible problem here. So here are quotes about what to do with hepatitis B. You have to understand that that's important to screen for, particularly, particularly in TNF-alpha agents. But as that second quote also says, with ustekinumab, cyclosporin, methotrexate, I would say with the IL-17 drugs too, you need to know their status. And here are all the drugs and their relationship to hepatitis B, and these are the ones that so far appear to be okay. Cyclosporin, acetretin, all types of phototherapy, and so far at least the IL-17 drugs. The other ones we either don't know or we have data that show it's a problem. So we talked about this, and she said, you know what, it's not that bad. I can come in for phototherapy. I work just about a mile away, and I don't mind taking that pill you talked about. She has no evidence of hypertriglyceridemia. She has no evidence of hypercholesterolemia. So I told her, you set expectations, and that's my message for this patient. You set expectations. I said, you know, you'll probably hear about drugs that really clear up psoriasis rather miraculously, but for one reason or another, you haven't chosen them. I don't think they're a good idea. You're not that bad. We'll try this. And she said, I just want to look a little better. Of course, she really wants to be clear. But that was her statement. So we started narrowband UVB twice a week. She's a mile away. She comes in in her lunch hour, still has most of her lunch hour available. And acetretin, which I started at 25 and ended up at 50 milligrams, a good dose daily. And here's what happened. To remind you, that's her pretreatment. This is six weeks of therapy. This is 12 weeks of therapy. She was happy. I think this is okay, but I'm not dancing in the aisles, but she's happy. And my message here is, it's the patient's expectation that's important. And there's a new concept that's going to be pushed to all of us soon, and that's treat to target. Like, you do whatever is necessary to make sure they make this target. And the target's going to be posi 90 to 100. You know what? I think that's ridiculous. Honestly, yes. If it's easy, convenient, there's no contraindication, and you have access to the drug that might end up with posi 100, mostly the newer IL-17 blockers, but the, if the patient is happy, that's okay. Less than totally clear is okay if it's okay with the patient. And while this wasn't stellar, she was happy, I was happy, I put her at no risk, and she's been doing this now, and she's thrilled. Which statement is true? A patient with evidence of hepatitis B infection can never receive an anti-TNF drug. Although it carries some risk, there is a strategy by which a hepatitis B infected individual can receive an anti-TNF drug when it's absolutely necessary, A or B.
Okay, so B is right and three quarters of you got it. For the quarter who didn't get it, or for those of you who got it right who were simply guessing and got 50% of your, you know, you're gonna be right if you're guessing, there is a way, and this is the strategy. Lamivudine is given at the inception of anti-TNF therapy, and if that is done, there's been no change in liver functions or viral DNA load. And that's been looked at with etanercept and infliximab. I have no reason to think it wouldn't also be true with adalimumab. This is not my way of choice, but I just wanted to make sure everybody knew this could be done. You would do this in close cooperation with a hepatologist. You wouldn't do it on your own. But with a hepatologist and their concurrence and the patient being relatively stable and not sick, if you had to give a TNF-alpha for one reason or another in someone who's hep B positive, you can actually do it. Okay, 34-year-old Hispanic male with five-year history of bad psoriasis. It's been extensive. He has no evidence of psoriatic arthritis. Uh, BMI 31, obese but not terrible as you'll see. Mild hypertension, he's been depressed. His psychiatrist says it's because of his psoriasis. His schedule makes it very difficult for him to come in for phototherapy. He tried methotrexate, his labs went crazy, tried it again, same thing happened. Same thing happened with acetretin, had major hypertriglyceridemia, like 700 plus. He did a Primalast and he was nauseated and vomiting and gave up on that. He's not responded to a Tanercept, a Dalimumab, or Ustekinumab. So this is a problem patient. And look at how widespread he is. Hispanic, so skin of color can have bad psoriasis, as I mentioned before. And what else do you see in his case history? Blood pressure, 175 over 93. Number one, that needs to be controlled. Not by me, but it needs to be controlled, and he needs to understand that. He's getting to stroke level, and he's relatively young. His fasting blood sugar is a little elevated, so there are problems here. Which of these findings is a component of the metabolic syndrome as seen in conjunction with psoriasis? Hypertension, elevated cholesterol, elevated triglycerides, hyperglycemia, or all of the above? I expect 94%. Wait, where are the numbers? Oh, 94%! Yo! Right on, you guys are so good. Makes me look really smart. Yes, that's the metabolic syndrome. Now, I don't expect for us to be primary care providers. I don't. But I do think it's important to remember some people only see us. It's amazing. Like, some women only see their gynecologist and that person serves as an everything. Some people might come to us because they have psoriasis and they might not see their primary care provider at all or very rarely. And so if they haven't had their blood pressure checked, they haven't had at least a hemoglobin A1C in the last couple years, if they haven't had their triglycerides or their cholesterol checked, and I mean taking their blood pressure, for God's sake, it's so easy. We should do that. We should at least assess them for these elements. And there's his blood pressure, and there's his fasting blood sugar. So 
I packed him off to a primary care person that I know who would see him that day, because 175 over 93, I know, it could be white coat hypertension, but still, it's a little bothersome to me, so off he went. Now, no response to his Tanercept, Adalimumab, or Ustekinumab. He can't do methotrexate, acetretin, or Primalast. So what else do I have left? Which of these drugs works through the blockade of the IL-17 system? Nemolizumab, Gasilcumab, Tildrakizumab, Bradalumab, or none of the above? IL-17. Either directly or through its receptor. Good. I'd like it to be a little higher. Bradalumab's a relatively new drug, and many of you may not have heard much about it. The most recently approved IL-17 through its receptor is how it works, but it is an IL-17 blocker, and it looks pretty good. It's the one with the black box warning about suicidal uh, problems. So I gave him a different IL-17. Actually, Bradalumab wasn't approved when I saw him. So I gave him secukinumab. There's the dose, and here's what happened. That's great. His post-inflammatory hypopigmentation, but that will fade with time. And of course, he was just thrilled to death. I was thrilled that his diastolic blood pressure was now 82 because he was on a couple of antihypertensives from a primary care provider. That's what made me really happy because I really don't like someone to have a stroke in the office. I'm just not very good at that. So this was good, and he was happy. Now, I want to ask you a theoretical question. What if I had given him secukinumab and nothing had failed? It had failed. What could I do? So here are some options. Always remember, you can add. If they get better, but it didn't get better enough, you can add. You can add topical. You can add laser if it's small areas. You can add phototherapy, although it's not approved for addition to anything. Or you could switch biologic drugs different class or different drug in same class. Those are kind of your options. And it kind of depends a lot on, is phototherapy reasonable? Do you offer it? Can the patient come in enough? Et cetera, et cetera. Or maybe it's just time to give up. How long do you wait till you say, this ain't working, time for something else? Usually three months. If it's some improvement, I might give it six. But when you're using biologic drugs, I expect relatively rapid improvement. And if I'm getting absolutely nowhere, or God forbid it's getting worse, and it's three months later, it's time to rethink the proposition. Some better, but not better enough, you can do these alterations. No response at all, time to rethink your proposition. So, I presented a lot of material with all these different cases. I hope some of it resonated with you and that these are problems you've actually had to face in real life. I hope you found something of pragmatic value, not just from my talk, but from several of your product theaters that also discussed psoriasis. And my final statement, it's my only soapbox, treat your psoriasis patient like it's my 80-year-old aunt. She suffered. My favorite aunt, she was my mother's sister, 
and they married two brothers. So my father's brother married my mother's sister. It was a little weird, but you know, <laughs> what the heck. And actually when I got mad at my parents because my aunt and uncle didn't live that far away, I just walked to my aunt and uncle and they'd give me a nice dinner and smooth things over with my parents. So, but I saw her suffer so terribly badly. It was really, really, really heartbreaking. So remember, these drugs, especially some of our new drugs, are incredibly safe. And we should give the best treatment we can to our psoriasis patients. They're depressed, they're anxious, they may be suicidal because of the lack of therapy, not just because of their disease. And they may itch and they may hurt, as we talked about with that 26-year-old woman. And they're embarrassed and they don't like being seen in public. And it is absolutely astounding to me the level of ignorance in society. Do you know my last comment? This is an anecdote. So the same guy's been cutting my hair <clears throat> when I get it cut. Some of you have seen me fluffier. But the same guy's been cutting my hair 20 years. And he knew I was a dermatologist. In about 15 years, 15 years into our association, he said, hey, doc, I got to ask you a question I've been meaning to ask for a long time. I'm waiting. Oh, my God, what's this going to be? He said, is psoriasis contagious? He's a hair professional. I don't like cutting hair of patients with psoriasis. I'm afraid I'm going to catch it. Oh, my God. I landed into him. How ignorant can you be? I didn't say that. But I said it in a nicer way. But this is your job. This is your profession. You treat psoriasis patients less than you do, or you think less of them than your non-psoriasis patients. Think of the person with psoriasis at the hairline or on the hands who's working as a bank teller or a cashier in the grocery store where their psoriasis is right out there to be seen. And most of the people in the, in the public don't know that this isn't contagious. Isn't that sad? So we, we need to treat them properly. We need to have empathy, and we need to use the best drugs that we can. That's my only soapbox. Thank you very much. The overall performance of the speaker. I'm itching to give him a five. <laughs> How useful will this session be in your practice? Oh my god. The most useful thing I've heard the whole time. I could write that in. I guess you can't. As a result of this program, do you intend to change your patient care? OK, we'll do a few questions. I have a couple of minutes, and then everybody can go to coffee break, including me. Are there any medications you routinely ask to be discontinued as they may worsen psoriasis? That's a really super question. So there's one class, well, there's two. One is lithium. Lithium is used for um, manic depressive disorders. Lithium makes psoriasis worse. Not very commonly used. But the other one, which is often used, oh my god, almost everybody in society is on it, beta blockers. Beta blockers make psoriasis worse. Now, it depends what the person's on the beta blocker for. I'll try and work around it if they need it for a cardiac arrhythmia. 
I take metoprolol for a cardiac arrhythmia, and if I don't take it, I'll die. So, I, you know, it's just fine, and it's much less toxic than the other antiarrhythmic drugs. But if it's being used because of some benign palpitation or it's being used as part of an antihypertensive regimen, so there are substitutes for those, I would ask beta blockers to be stopped. And definitely lithium, unless it's the only thing that works. What do you tell patients about risk of breastfeeding while on a biologic? We don't know. The way to err is on the side of conservatism because many of them do get into breast milk that where it's been measured. We don't know if it would do any harm, but it's a problem. Unless someone is hell-bent, I have to breastfeed because I know that's the healthiest thing for my baby. I will try and convince them not to do so. It's the safest, most conservative route. I don't know that that's really the only thing to do, but that's how I approach it. Uh, to clarify, FDA is doing away with pregnancy categories for all medications. Won't have it anymore. Damn. Um, is there a systemic alternative to a Tannercept in a pregnant woman with first-degree family history of MS? Um, yeah, pick anything that isn't a TNF-alpha. That's your alternative. What are your thoughts? Now, the problem is not so much what we want to do, right? You all know this. The problem is not so much what we want to do, it's what insurance will let us do. Because most of my patients don't have a spare 40 grand laying around that they want to pay for their medicines as desperate as they are. So you may have step edits where you have to fail something. So, for example, if the step edit includes failing methotrexate, what I do is I give them 2.5 milligrams a day, a week, excuse me, a week for three months, and they fail. <laughs> I can write, they failed methotrexate. You know, it's fine. It's creative, creative. Um, what are your thoughts on low-dose methotrexate and anti-TF agents? So there is some synergy there. It depends what you're doing it for. If you're doing it because they've done okay, but you want to add a little methotrexate to make them do okay better, then that's fine. And a small dose, two and a half, five milligrams, 10 max per week. If you're doing it because you want to stop the creation of neutralizing antibodies, which are very rarely, you heard that with Dupixent, they, they may, you may get antibodies, it's a foreign protein, but they very rarely interfere with the activity of the biologic drug, then if that's why you're doing it, I wouldn't. I don't routinely do it at all. None of these people got methotrexate for a variety of reasons. They got biologic monotherapy with a little spot steroid or a little spot eczema laser, and they did just peachy cool fine. So I don't routinely use methotrexate along with any biologic agent. With the increased risk of non-melanoma skin cancers, how often do you do total body skin exams for patients on biologic? Another wonderful question. I do it every four months if it's okay with the patient, so three times a year. If they live in Columbia, Texas, which is 120 miles away, and I've got patients from further than that, I do it every six months. I don't do it yearly. I think you need to look a little more frequently than that. Now, if you're from North Dakota and you never see the sun, you know, once a decade. But for most of us, I think every four months to six months is appropriate. 
Is it safe to give patients with a history of malignancy biologics? Well, you, you saw the quote that was in there. It's uncertain. We don't know. If they've been declared cured five years or more, for example, for colon cancer, lung cancer, I think it's fine. But as a courtesy, I always call their oncologist and say, this patient has psoriasis. I'm going to go with biologic. Is it OK? Are they really cured? Did you just tell them that? Are you lying to them? Well, they're not usually lying. but. You know, it did happen once, though. I had an oncologist say, yeah, we told the patient they were cured, but they actually have existing disease, but we know it's going to make them kill themselves if they know that, so we lied to them. Oh, how bad is that? So they should be allowed to get their affairs in order, et cetera, et cetera. But routinely, if there's called cured, I think giving the biologic drug is fine. If it's something under five years or 10 years, some would say, for breast cancer, which has a late recurrence rate, um, then I call the oncologist and I get the okay. Do I think it's okay? I think it's okay. But I always get the approval. Do, do you ever give IM steroid injections for flare-ups of psoriasis? I don't. I'm not going to say don't ever do it. I'm just going to say I've seen where steroid cleared them up during their flare, and then they flipped into pustular disease. And that's one hell of a bad thing to treat. So that's why that has fallen into some disrepute. Some people still do it. And there are proponents of it who say it's really safe if you're not giving them a lot of IM steroid. But remember, once you put that steroid in their butt, in their muscle, it's there and you can't get it out. So that might aggravate hyperglycemia. It might end causing aseptic necrosis of the femoral head. It might make their blood pressure go through the roof. I discourage it. I'm not saying it's wrong. I discourage it. OK, I've gone five minutes over, and I want you all to have a break. So I'll stay here. If anyone has any additional questions, come ask me. Thank you so much for being such a good audience. This has been a production of Dermcast TV, brought to you by the Society of Dermatology PAs, recorded live during our summer 2017 meeting in San Diego, California.